So we're joined today by three panelists. Kim Daniels is the Associate Director of the Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life at Georgetown University. A graduate of Princeton University and the University of Chicago Law School, Kim was appointed by Pope Francis as a member of the Vatican Dicastery for Communication in 2016 and has been a lead advisor to the U.S. bishops and Catholic organizations on issues where church teachings intersect with public life, including immigration, human life and dignity, religious liberty, and care for creation. She has appeared on CNN, Fox News, and PBS, and in the Huffington Post, Reuters, the Washington Post, and Catholic media outlets. Russell Hittinger is the William K. Warren Professor of Catholic Studies and Research Professor of Law at the University of Tulsa. He is also a member of the Pontifical Academy of the Social Sciences and the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas. Hittinger is the author of many books, including A Critique of the New Natural Law Theory, The First Grace, Rediscovering Natural Law in a Post-Christian Age, Thomas Aquinas, The Rule of Law, and most recently he is working on Paper Wars, Catholic Social Doctrine and the Modern State. And Russ is also going to be joining us um, full-time starting in uh, June uh, with the Lumen Christi Institute. And we finally have joining us here Father Michael Sweeney, um, who founded and directs the Lay Mission Project of the Western Dominican Province. Previously, he served as president of the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology in Berkeley, California, with Sherry Waddell. He founded the um, with Sherry Waddell, he founded the St. Catherine of Siena Institute, which equips parishes to form lay apostles. A native of Vancouver, British Columbia, he was ordained in 1979 and has served as a university chaplain and as a pastor in a parish setting. Father Sweeney gives lectures and workshops around the country on lay formation and the mission of the church. Please join me now in welcoming Kim Daniels. Thank you. Thank you all very much for having me today. It's really great to be back here at the University of Chicago, which was just one of the best times of our lives. My husband and I uh, got married here while we were in law school. We lived, um, our hotel is like a block away from where we lived uh, while we were here, so I love being here. Um, it's, I'm sorry it's coming back to discuss such a heartbreaking time in the life of our church. For me and for so many of you, the church is a home, it's a family, it's the place where we make our friendships, uh, worship God, sit on the sidelines at CYO games, send our kids to school. Uh, it's the center of our daily lives. And given that context, it's really no surprise of the, the anger and the anguish that American Catholics have been felt over the revelations over the past few months about abuse of uh, power and about clerical sexual abuse of minors and vulnerable adults. And as we think about how to move forward, I'd like to give an overview of our current moment a brief review of how we got here, and finally a description of what might lie ahead. The latest iteration of the clerical sexual abuse crisis began with revelations regarding Cardinal Theodore McCarrick's abuse of children and predation on seminarians as he was protected by a culture of clericalism that looked the other way at every turn. It soon moved on to the release of the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report and its horrific accounting of decades of sexual abuse and cover-up involving over 1,000 potential victims and 300 potential abuser priests. And again, remember, this was a grand jury report, not uh, a final report. But at the same time, that was just in six dioceses in one state. 
That report alleged that Cardinal Donald Worrell of Washington, D.C., long seen as a leader on this issue, had himself permitted accused priests to be reassigned, and in October, Pope Francis accepted his resignation. In the wake of the Pennsylvania grand jury report, as well as the McCarrick revelations, over a dozen U.S. states, as well as the U.S. Department of Justice, are seeking records and have launched investigations into Catholic dioceses with many more sure to follow. And these revelations have helped American Catholics gain awareness of so many other instances when church leaders failed in their most basic duty to protect the vulnerable, not just in the US, but in places like Chile and Canada and Germany and Australia and India and Ireland and so many others. Into this volatile context, Archbishop Carla Maria Vigano launched several letters raising questions about who knew what when regarding Cardinal McCarrick, all amid scattershot accusations, allegations of conspiracy, and a call for Pope Francis' resignation, using the burgeoning abuse crisis as a vehicle for some agenda, set, agenda uh, setting, score settling, and advancing of ecclesial agendas, and at the same time raising questions about who knew what when that we need to address. More recently, we've seen reports out of Buffalo regarding Bishop Malone's failure to remove abusive priests from ministry and efforts to cover up the scope of abuse in his diocese, as well as a major joint investigation by the Boston Globe and the Philadelphia Inquirer, which found that more than 130 US bishops have been accused of failing to respond adequately to clerical sexual abuse, with over 50 of them after the adoption of the 2002 charter. And finally, this past week, uh, we've seen a meeting of the US Conference of Catholic Bishops that opened with an announcement that the Vatican had determined that the proposals under discussion which the Holy See had received only days earlier, had a number of problems that meant they could not be put to a vote and should be held in abeyance until Pope Francis could meet at the upcoming February meeting of Episcopal Conference presidents from around the world so that further action can be informed by the experience of bishops from around the globe. As Cardinal Supic said in reaction to this, it is clear that the Holy See recognizes the urgency of the issue and is placing great importance on the February meeting understanding that the present crisis is not limited to just one or a few countries, but is a watershed moment for the universal church. Now the bishops gathered in Baltimore had some fruitful discussions, but they came to no real conclusions, leading many to wonder why so many bishops seeming more concerned with their rights and privileges than with their responsibilities. And why despite much talk of the need for fraternal correction, several bishops who covered up clerical sexual abuse and denied justice to victims attended the meeting, and even spoke. Lay American Catholics arrive at this moment with anguish in our hearts for the victims and survivors of sexual abuse and anger at our leaders who we trusted to prevent these horrific crimes and expected to live by the truth of our faith. The crisis has eroded trust in our bishops, damaged their credibility as moral leaders, and caused their preaching of the gospel to often ring hollow. So as we try to think about a path forward in the wake of this crisis, I think many of us, the answers are coalescing about, around leadership from faithful, engaged laity, working together with bishops, priests, and religious to protect children and vulnerable adults, secure justice and healing for survivors, provide real accountability for bishops and genuine transparency regarding cases of abuse and cover-up, including zero tolerance of abuse, and reform the clerical culture so that abuse and its cover-up can never happen again. Now, of course, for these reforms to take hold, they can't only be grounded in procedural efforts, commissions and protocols and training programs, however well-intentioned. These necessary concrete and practical reforms must be rooted 
in a renewed sense of holiness and mission, and a revitalized understanding of the radical claims that the gospel of Jesus Christ makes on us, and of what it means to walk together on a path forward as a church. As Pope Francis said in his letter to the people of God following the release of the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, when it comes to responding to this crisis, we can't create projects and structures without roots, without memory, without faces, but instead must halt before the sufferings of the innocent without excuse or cowardice and discover the model of a true follower of Christ. We all seek to get to a place of never again, a place we trusted that church leaders had taken us. I think it's clear to all of us that we're not there yet. So to give some background for the rest of our discussion, I've been asked to take you through a brief history of the clerical sexual abuse crisis in the US and attempts to deal with it from the 1980s right up to this week. After that, I'll wrap it up by talking about some principles to govern our path forward. So first, the clerical abuse crisis in the United States in the Catholic Church has simmered for decades and it exploded in 2002 and has now reemerged in 2018 on a global scale. Litigation regarding abuse in the U.S. goes back to the 19th century, and civil claims were settled throughout the 20th. But they were seen as isolated cases and didn't get a great deal of attention. Some have divided the clerical abuse crisis into three main waves, and after this summer, we can probably add a fourth. The first wave, from 1984 or so to 1993, began with the case of Father Gilbert Gothay in Lafayette, Louisiana, a predatory pedophile who molested at least 37 boys in four different parishes. His case touched off a wave of cases and drew national attention, causing some dioceses to begin to develop policies for responding to abuse. During this time period, US bishops, the Bishop's Conference, and the Vatican began to develop and strengthen their own anti-abuse policies. The second wave went from 1992 to 2001, beginning with the case of Father James Porter in Fall River, Massachusetts, who abused over 100 boys and girls in Massachusetts parishes in the 1980s, and was sentenced to 18 to 20 years in prison. This resulted in a statement of general principles by the Bishop's Conference, which Peter Steinfels describes as, respond to allegations promptly, immediately suspend anyone reasonably suspected of abuse while proceeding with an investigation and making use of appropriate evaluation and intervention, comply with civil law and cooperate with criminal investigations, reach out to victims and deal with the issue as openly as possible. 1992, 1991 and 92 was a watershed moment, in large part due to the efforts of Chicago's own Cardinal Joseph Bernadin. Under Cardinal Bernadin, the Archdiocese of Chicago was the first diocese to put into place credible policies against clerical sexual abuse. In 1991, he assembled a committee that, again, according to Steinfels, not only called 40 years of diocesan records to identify potential abusers and remove those that are still active, but also recommended a new model for handling accusations, a lay-dominated committee, including a victim or victim's relative, a non-clerical gatekeeper, and a publicized hotline. The Chicago model was imitated or at least adopted elsewhere. And Chicago was also the first diocese to establish an office for the protection of children in 1992. The third wave lasted from 2002 to about 2008 or so, beginning with the case of Father John Gagan in Boston and the Boston Globe Spotlight series, which showed the full extent of sexual abuse of children by clergy in Boston, as well as the cover-up by Cardinal Law and the Boston hierarchy. By 2004, the Globe had written 800 articles on the scandal. Cardinal Law had resigned, 150 priests in Boston stood accused of sexual abuse, and more than 500 victims had filed abuse claims. The investigative series, of course, you know, received widespread national attention. 
And in the wake of the scandal, the Vatican instructed the US church to develop binding law to protect children, leading to the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People adopted in Dallas in June 2002, widely known as the Dallas Charter, along with the essential norms for dealing with allegations of sexual abuse. The USCCB, which is the US Conference of Catholic Bishops, commissioned the John Jay Report on the nature and scope of the sexual abuse crisis, and the National Review Board for the Protection of Children and Young People began its work. After the charter, dioceses across the country put in place many more robust policies, most importantly, including zero tolerance policies of regarding the sexual abuse of minors. It required all dioceses to heal and promote reconciliation of victims and survivors, to make prompt and effective responses to abuse allegations, to cooperate with civil authorities and discipline offenders, to create a safe environment for children, to provide means of accountability for the future, and to ensure the problem continues to be effectively dealt with through the Secretariat for Youth and Child Protection and the National Review Board. But as we've learned over these past months, the main hole in the Dallas Charter was that it did not adequately hold bishops accountable. We've just begun this fourth wave in 2018, as described earlier, beginning with the revelations concerning former Cardinal McCarrick, moving to the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, the acceptance of Cardinal Wuerl's resignation, and the US bishops meeting that began with a promise to unite around real resolutions only to end with little to show for it, except discussion of a number of draft proposals that even if they had been voted on, would have been unlikely to pass, and had they passed, unlikely to achieve real accountability for bishops or transparency regarding abuse and its cover-up. So while 2002 was about the behavior of priests, 2018 is about the behavior of bishops and the Holy See and the need for genuine accountability, transparency, and responsiveness. Even when the underlying abuse occurred decades ago, the laity seek accountability and consequences for leaders who neglected, enabled, and covered up abuse as prelates sought to protect the institution rather than the faithful. And their participation in this culture of destructive clericalism far too often engaged in cover-up of horrific crimes against those most deserving of protection and care. So what's the impact here and what's our path forward? How can we begin to think about next steps when faced with all of this? Lay Catholics, as you know, that's why you're here, we're looking for answers. We question how those who engaged in or covered up abuse rose through the hierarchy with denial, concealment, and wrongful behavior continuing year after year after year. How can we be here again? Defensive answers, references to bad advice or lack of knowledge or statements that reform has already taken place, do not effectively respond to the fundamental questions posed by the laity. How could this happen? Why do Catholic leaders try to protect the institution rather than the vulnerable? And when will we learn the complete facts and hold people accountable? This is not a communications problem. It is not a failure of messaging, of getting the full story out there. It is not the fault of the secular media, without whom we wouldn't know the full extent of the clerical sexual abuse crisis and its cover-up. It is a substantive problem rooted in grave moral failure and a cultural problem rooted in clericalism. Catholics are angry and we're anguished. We struggle to pass our Catholic faith onto our children, who unsurprisingly see in these grave moral failures an institution that has lost much of its credibility and its moral authority. The whole church didn't fail, but the whole church needs the hope that we can effectively address this crisis so as to reform and renew our church and begin to heal. So where do things stand now? Despite all of the above, I believe things are moving forward very slowly, as always, with our church. 
here are just a few of the actions that are going forward right now. First, any number of lay initiatives are springing up to respond to this, including conversations like this, which I think are very important for people to come together as Catholics or as interested uh, others to think about how we can move this forward. This here at Chicago, at Georgetown, we have the initiative on Catholic social thought and public life, which is at any number of events, three events so far, and hopefully a major event in the spring on this, convening lay leaders together to think about how to move forward. We also have things like the, lay, the Leadership Roundtable, which proposes management best practices and many other uh, initiatives of that nature. I want to note, though, that lay leadership is not a panacea. Advice from lay people, lawyers and psychologists and others led too many bishops to shuffle around priests and return them to ministry. And some lay efforts are misguided, witch hunts that import political methods into our church and should be avoided. Now, another wonderful effort here is that respected professional journalists are continuing to pursue these important stories. And while of course journalists should be fair and should be thoroughly reporting these stories and that some people are biased, the real story is that the media has by and large done Catholics an important service. Next, in the wake of the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, there are now over a dozen state investigations into various dioceses, with many more sure to come. There are any number of civil suits, including one just filed yesterday, I think, against the US Conference of Catholic Bishops. The US Department of Justice has sent a hold letter to every diocese in the United States, telling them, not to, to, telling them to retain all of their documents, obviously signaling that litigation could be in the future. These kinds of legal actions raise very complicated questions for us. These are not easy answers here. They often spring from political motivations, the potential damage to our ability to serve the poor and vulnerable, other questions like that. But at the same time, the investigatory power is something that has helped us in the past to uncover grave abuse. And now as for the church, four dioceses right now are conducting investigations into Cardinal McCarrick, and the Vatican has launched its own investigation as well. So we're moving forward on that front too. So the February meeting, what should we expect? This is a meeting of Episcopal Conference presidents, Bishops Conference presidents from around the world, meeting at the Vatican from February 21st to 24th. I don't know what to expect as we think about what's going to happen. I think that we know, first of all, that the themes of accountability and transparency will clearly be key. I believe that there will be engagement with survivors, and I hope so, because we see often that it's that transformative effect of speaking with someone who's actually suffered through this that can change behaviors of prelates. I think a hope that we'll have strong consideration of what kind of concrete changes we can make. And I think we'll also begin to consider structural reforms of the church to root out this culture of clericalism and reinvigorate lay leadership along the lines that Father Michael will surely describe. We're all angry, but I think it's important to keep our expectations in check for this meeting. We should fully expect concrete action, but this is a major challenge that requires broader changes that can be expected from one gathering. As veteran religion journalist Kenneth Woodward said in Commonweal, the scandals of 2018 ought to be seen as spurs to thoughtful action, not occasions for fruitless displays of anger, shock, shame, and despair. So just to conclude, I think our path forward here is uncertain, but we can identify some particular themes that it should have. First, it should be rooted in our mission as Catholics to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ together. Second, we should recognize that faithful, responsible, engaged lay leadership is key to this effort. As Pope Francis said this summer during the depths of the crisis, every one of the baptized should feel involved in the ecclesial and social change that we so greatly need. Third, in moving forward, we should keep certain basic principles in mind. Justice and healing for survivors first, 
ensure that the vulnerable are protected, rebuild institutional integrity through efforts towards genuine accountability and transparency, including zero tolerance, and reform the clerical culture so that this cannot happen again. In pursuing reform in the justifiably heated context surrounding these efforts, we should also keep close to our hearts the words of Cardinal Avery Dulles regarding true and false reform, in which he noted that a reform that is Catholic in spirit will seek to maintain communion with the whole body of the church and will avoid anything savoring of schism or factionalism. To that end, to that end let's remember that around this city and this country and the world right now, every day the sacraments are being celebrated Children are being taught in Catholic schools, the hungry are being fed through Catholic social service programs, and the sick are being cared for in Catholic hospitals. That's our mission as Catholics, and focusing on that mission, love of God and love of neighbor, celebrating the sacraments and serving those in need, will keep us together, will keep us unified, will remind us that we are the church. We're all in this together. We need to stay and renew and rebuild. It's up to us. And at the end of the day, when I'm just sick of heart because I'm hearing all of this evil, this awfulness, this venality, I say the creed and I still believe every line of it to be true. I still can't help but stand with Peter saying, to who shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I hope that's true of you all too. Thank you. So in lieu of a formal presentation by Russ and Father Sweeney, um, we've also invited them to enter into important dialogue um, together here around the topic of um, governing and um, lay formation and discipleship. Tim is right. There were more than one wave of disclosure. Mm -hmm. Pretty shocking to find out that a lot of these cases went back when I would have been in parochial school in first grade in the mid-1950s. Never saw a bit of that when I was going to school. But uh, however urgent the abuse issue is, it's disclosed to Catholics something that seems wrong with the institutional coherence. So I'll just speak for myself. Uh, how did this crop up everywhere in the world? So for instance, Ireland, Quebec, Australia, Chile, Honduras, Italy, Vatican City, the United States, with, with a very similar pattern. That is, the same institutional things, problems with seminaries, problems with clericalism, problems with hiding, moving people around, um, it seems very unlikely that it would have arisen on five continents and so many places if this were just a failure of personal morality. There's something systemic, we say. And it didn't happen overnight. This cannot be just blamed on the 60s either. We found out from the Pennsylvania Grand Jury report. Once upon a time, I think... Catholics would know how to handle this. And I'll just say what the older option was that I don't think is available to us. Once upon a time, there were Catholic laity 
who had oversight and political checking power upon the clergy. In the East since the fourth century, since Constantine, in the West since at least the eighth century, Carolingians, that is, baptized kings and families that were capable of nominating bishops, in effect, deposing them, uh, making judgments about whether councils should meet and when they should meet. This, this, this was routine governance. A century ago, 1918, saw the end of these families, right? Romanovs went in the east, Habsburg's House of Savoy and Wittelsbach in the west. I mean, that was, this was the last of our families who represented the laity, had actually enormous power. And that system, which was kind of a common law constitution of the church, this was never expressed doctrinally, that the baptized laity who rule can do such things as uh, delay the opening of an ecumenical council. But that, that unwritten constitution of lay representation, a kind of checking and oversight, uh, more than a thousand years old, lasted for a long time. But we can't go back to that. It's, it's a, first of all, those families don't exist. And we've had since then two ecumenical councils and two codes of canon law that make it very clear that no lay authority is in a position to directly govern ad intra inside the church, the papacy or the college, uh, or the apostolic college. I mean, to try to alter that would really be to tear the plumbing out of the bottom of the house. I mean, every floor would change. You'd, you'd have to undo two ecumenical councils and two codes of canon law. And one of the interesting things that the nuncio said earlier this week, I want to quote him, one must not renounce the responsibility of reforming oneself, first of all, nor can one transfer the deposit of trust to other institutions. Regaining trust is not enough. When it comes to the responsibility we have for children, vulnerable adults, we must show that we can solve the problems instead of delegating them to others. The we is the clergy, mm -hmm. what, and not just priests, but uh, apostolic, Episcopal authority. So the question is, if lay people can be, have consultative authority by delegation of some kind, consultative authority, what, what is the lay role in governing uh, besides attorney generals. Mm -hmm. Attorney generals in the various states are not like the Carolingians or the Habsburgs, right? I mean, this really does raise a, a, a systematic question of even what a synod is. Well, I'm hoping that in February, the Pope gives us some direction on this. Mm what is actually going to be the structural means in keeping with the tradition of the church, at least since Vatican I, by which there is to be adequate oversight and 
checking and what role will be given to the laity? I don't know. As you know, uh, my take, or those of you who are possibly at lunch, um, there is indeed in the church, uh, sorry, there is indeed in the church a sort of paradigmatic clericalism. I don't think it is necessarily intended, but it has become so much a matter of our culture that it pertains whether we intend it or not. The, uh, the clergy, the hierarchy, have as their principal responsibility, according to this paradigm, the care of souls. Now, and we remember that by ordination, they are to stand in persona Christi Capitis, in the, in the place of Christ the head, in the exercise of that responsibility. Now that, I think, is uh, sacrosanct. At the same time, because the care of souls has so much determined the culture of the church, it is impossible to see that the laity have any real voice in the business of the church at all if that is our paradigm. The uh, lay members of the faith, members of the lay faithful contribute by delegation as extraordinary ministers in the administration of the sacraments in the care of souls. But that's the extent of it. At the same time, uh, at the council, the role of the laity in the church was spoken of for the first time in the history of the church for its own sake in an ecumenical council. The reason for that was the sanctification of the temporal order. And so when we consider the church, the mission of the church ad extra, the church herself, the magisterium, and we believe the Holy Spirit speaking to the church through the council, articulates a, a, a real work of the laity, which, however, has not factored into our Catholic imagination. And so what has been called for is actual co-responsibility in the mission of the church. Um, I, as you know, I love to cite Pope John Paul II, that the church wishes to serve this single end. So the Catholic Church has a single end. And it is that each person meet Christ risen and the love of the Father that is manifested in him. This is the single end of the church so that the church may walk with each man and each woman. In other words, Christ may walk with each man and each woman by means of the agency of the church reflected in, manifested in, incarnate in the lay faithful. Now, this opens up a whole realm in which there must be a lay voice in the church and the magisterial documents have called for it. Co-responsibility must mean that we have equal responsibility for the end, that is that each man and each woman meet Christ risen, that the tasks we have toward that end are of equal dignity, that we have equal voice in discerning the manner of the church's mission and that there is a real accountability. Now we have no structures for that yet, but that is where the structures must occur and it seems to me 
that it is entirely legitimate to insist as the people of God that this is the manner in which the church must somehow realize in a way a new structure. The, uh, I think anything short of that uh, will leave me at least deeply disappointed and really defeat the, the whole mission of the church as articulated in the council. And so uh, that would, uh, I, I think the central issue in a sense is uh, a voice that is truly one of co-responsibility for the church's mission. But in order to achieve this, it is necessary for us to hold the mission of the church itself as the fundamental thing. There can be for us a sort of ecclesiolatry. And I'm afraid what we actually have in our seminaries is the segregation of men who are prepared for the care, for the sake of the care of souls, who uh, have no course anywhere in, there is no course in governance, and governance always pro, uh, pertains to the vocation of the people of God. There is no course in governance in any seminary in North America. I believe in the world. And, and, and this, and so, the young men who go into the seminary are segregated from the lay community and are trained in a certain sense, formed for the sake of the care of souls, which is entirely a, a clerical mission. And that there is any room for governance or discussion beyond that is very hard to see. And so th this must be, uh, I, I think, in the end where we head. And the means to establishing this must be a lay voice which speaks from the church's mission, then I think the laity really cannot be ignored. So as a start. Can I, can I react to that? Yes. Now, I, so my first, the first like, three thoughts come to mind. And the first regarding governance, I think that anybody who's ever worked in the church knows that what we ask of our bishops is just extraordinary, right? You're gonna go, you're gonna be the pastor of souls, uh, often in, in a huge shot, millions of souls. Two and a half million of them here, yes. Right, so, so you're gonna be the pastor of souls, you're gonna run an educational system, you're gonna run a hospital system, you're gonna have to worry about the operations of, of the various uh, buildings in your diocese and all the rest, and they're just not trained for that. Who is trained for that? Who does have a vocation of that? lay people. And so I think that, that there are a lot of practical efforts right now to get that kind of lay expertise more involved in how we run the church. And I will say, of course, everybody should recognize that we have a lot of lay involvement in those, you know, where we have lay review boards and dioceses where lay people have involvement. We have pastoral councils and finance councils and all the rest in the wake of Vatican II. The fact is that that, that level of lay involvement has not been enough to stop the kind of abuse that we see in the cover up that we see or the, the crisis of clericalism. Um, can I just say one, one way I think about it though, I, I would love to have this kind of structural change or think through what it would look like maybe is the better way to say that. And I think that in, in Pope Francis theology, we see a lot of openings towards that. So he talks a lot about the holy faithful people of God and popular piety and he talks about synodality and I think there are a lot of ways, I'd love to hear more about that. Um, the final thing I would say though is I think that we have to think about uh, the soft power of lady, right, if we don't have hard power. So I would say that's a little bit of uh, calling for, for real transparency. So that when a bishop has a credible, substantiated accusation of cover-up abuse, that that comes forward and that knowing that information is something that we can use as a, a way of um, having justice and having consequences for those that misconduct. So actually, 
would think that any co-responsibility requires, in the first place, knowledge. Mm -hmm. Okay, so laity cannot depose bishops. They can actually sit on seminary boards approving people for ordination. A layperson can be on a marriage tribunal. These are kind of delegations. Yes. But, but real co-responsibility requires knowledge. And what was most shocking mm -hmm. about 2018, the year from hell, right? Right. Yes. No one seemed to know any of this. And uh, so I think the lady needs knowledge. Now, obviously, knowledge has limits, moral limits to it. Right. But why, why didn't any of us know about priests being transferred around? Like, did anyone even know that there's no way in canon law to laicize a, a bishop short of a direct act of the Holy See? How can we be co-responsible without knowing at least as much as the bishops who covered up knew? And one of the, one of the things we saw at this bishops meeting uh, in Baltimore this week was that um, we have a national review board right now and, and the head of it reported to the, uh, to the bishops and gave a quite uh, impassioned address regarding this crisis. Um, but one of the questions for him is why, why didn't you know? Um, you know, where were the audits of the diocese? And uh, that when, if the Pennsylvania AG is finding this out, why didn't we know? Um, and that's a question I think we have to answer as well. I have a question, though, for you all, and that's why can't we change canon law? How hard is it to change provisions? For instance, I believe the Dallas Charter, I think I mentioned this before, the Dallas Charter, the norms adopted in 2002 on this issue, got something called a recognitio from the Vatican to allow it to become particular law in the United States. And I just wonder whether there are tools like that, or is it an enormous change that, that I can't really get my head around or something? Any? Well, even in the 1983 code, John Paul II got the committee going to revise the code of canon law. I don't think there were any laity on the immediate committee. No. Uh, and he ordered them to do this. Organize canon law around the triplex munus Christi, priest, prophet, and king, which is shared by the laity. And they came back after about a year and says, there's no way we can do it. There's just no way to cram, you know, a uh, couple thousand canons mm -hmm. into that neat order. John Paul was disappointed, but approved it. But you have to remember in canon law, even the 1983 code, the Pope is the supreme legislator. Yeah. Actually, he's the supreme executor. And legislator. And, yeah. And judge. And judge. And judge. He, he holds talk about the triplex munas. <laughs> uh, and so why is it hard to change it besides the fact that it's very, very bulky and it's overseen sure. by lawyers on the inside? Right. Is that we really do have a system uh, in which the Pope can act fairly unilaterally on this, and if the Pope doesn't want the code changed, it won't be changed. And at the same time, I, I hear you, and at the same time, I, I believe that, uh, bracket the abuse crisis for a second, and everything else we would say about Pope Francis, right, would be that he does want um, uh, power devolved. And so I wonder, I wonder if one of the reasons we saw the brakes put on um, the proposals this week 
was that he wanted this meeting in February to have real impact. Uh, and we want to have a real discussion so that we can make significant changes. And the kind of measures that were under consideration this week were not going to be the kind of significant changes that he hopes to have. So we'll see. For the first time in 1983, there are canons uh, on the laity and on the rights of laity in the church. There is, I think, a huge opportunity to, re, uh, to cast those further. The, um, it's, it's interesting, in Chile, I believe, the, no, 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 it was in Africa. Um, the priests uh, of a diocese refused to receive the bishop who had been uh, named by the Vatican. Um, and, uh, and basically, the, uh, Pope Francis said, um, you'll lose your faculties unless you receive him. Um, the, and, and so, uh, but it would be very interesting for the laity of a diocese to say that uh, because of uh, abuse that, is, that this man cannot serve us. And, and I think the response of the Holy See in that case would be quite different. The, um, because that pertains directly to not the administration of the church, but, but rather to the, to the office of the bishop himself, more than in his relationship um, simply to the priest of the diocese. Mm -hmm. the, but there are, it seems to me, opportunities in the code with respect to uh, the, the laity themselves, that, uh, uh, which after all was new to the 1983 right. code. Um, that could be looked at and, and relatively easily. Uh, 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 sure. Well, it, it says that the laity may rightfully bring their complaints yeah, and to the proper ecclesiastical authority. Mm -hmm. And that right must be exonerated. Yeah. But the means of the exoneration of the right, right isn't there. You know. But see, you can't efficaciously do this without knowing a thing or two. Without having knowledge. Without having knowledge. I mean, how can you bring your complaint that the bishop is shuffling sure. priests around or not attending to the proper moral atmosphere of the seminary uh, in the schools without knowledge? I don't see anything in canon law except for a general moral requirement that people don't have information that they shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. Right. It would be true of secular institutions as well that prevents the laity from having adequate knowledge of the administration of the church, even with regard to personnel. And that gets back to transparency and how important it is. And I think that that's something that as we go, when I listened to the bishop's meeting this week, I heard a lot of concern for their prerogatives, uh, the right to a good reputation and all the rest. And I think that one of the things as lady that we should be asking for is, is attention to the responsibilities, which might involve more knowledge from up on our part, uh, more mm -hmm. transparency. Um, I feel that that's something that's central. Mm -hmm. Can I, one thing that you mentioned, the, the African situation. I've, uh, in my work in the church, one of the things I've has been so, so wonderful is learning in having a greater awareness of the global nature of our church and really coming into contact with people from all over the world um, uh, on, usually on issues that are, that are uh, more enjoyable to deal with than this. And, uh, but certainly there's no more important issue than this. And when you do that, you realize that this issue plays out very differently in different places. So if, you're, if you have an authoritarian government, uh, it's, it's hard to talk about working with civil authorities, right? Um, some places don't even recognize this as a problem, uh, right? They haven't quite gotten to their 
they're still back in 1960 for us where nobody knows what's going on. Is that accurate? Is yeah, there that, any kind of implication? That would be Honduras, I would say, yeah. the Cardinal Archbishop in Honduras. <laughs> but does that have implications for changing? In other words, does that argue more for universal norms or, or sort of more particular local norms? <laughs> there should be room in a certain sense for uh, local norms. And again, to me, uh, transparency is not the same thing as accountability, which uh, really uh, I think we must look at. And so more than transparency. And that can be done in a way that protects the Episcopal office. The, uh, it's uh, kind of, again, countamount, uh, it, it's tantamount to the lady saying, take your place. Mm -hmm. the, uh, but the, I, I, I think now it's interesting to me, um, Thomas made this remark to me the other, Thomas Levergood, uh, that uh, we religious have more independence in the church than the bishops do. The, with respect to our own legislation, with respect to the way in which we uh, monitor our own men, whom we know, and this is a problem. The, I, I think part of the, our structural problem, I, it is not possible. The evangelicals have done studies. The most people that a single person can pastor is about 200, not two and a half million. <laughs> The, right. the average Catholic parish in this country is 3,500 parishioners, average. Many are larger than that. To pastor that number is simply impossible. Now, that, that means that uh, the, a, a conversation among the people of God uh, is, is, is essential and is actually uh, a, a required part, I think, of a bishop's or a pastor's responsibility. But uh, act, again, to take counsel on uh, the, the local church, and, uh, and, and I think that, that truly is required. And the, uh, the canons that are already there on the laity, again, it seems to me, could be rather easily, uh, uh, could accommodate that, that sort of structure. But we have a problem then, and that is, again, that uh, the laity received no formation at all in the church none with respect to the lay mission because we haven't acknowledged that the lady has one. <laughs> the, uh, we always form around a mission. And so the priests, the hierarchy are formed for the sake of the care of souls. And that is, I think, the limit of the horizon. The um, religious are formed, receive a formation for the sake of whatever mission they're going to conduct in the church. Mm -hmm. I received an eight-year formation before I was inflicted on the people of God. Okay. <laughs> the laity have received no formation whatsoever because there's no acknowledgement that there is anything like a lay mission, uh, a lay mission in the church as lay. There's one interesting development on that score, which I think is still somewhat foggy theologically and canonically, and that's the movements. Yeah. Right. Uh -huh. The movements are a really interesting case of having some of them. Yep. Ecclesiastical recognition, mm -hmm. having priests in their midst to serve basically a lay mission, mm -hmm. who, have, who are not just completely under the thumb of the local ordinary. Yes. 
But yeah. this, this is much more prominent in Europe than it is in this country. Absolutely. And, and uh, one of the problems with that, of course, is it doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't have much relationship to the local church, right. to the parishes and so on, which is where our, our, our folks are. And, and, and I think uh, people in the movements that I know in Italy would, would say this in response. Well, we've been going for three generations to our parish, and we have no mission as lady in the movement we do. Yeah, Sorry. Exactly. I mean, exactly. yeah. uh, it's, it's a valuable option for us to be active laity besides, uh, you know, a sacramental filling station parish. And... There could be some promise in this for uh, not just uh, transparency, but also a kind of accountability. Yes, the, um, I, I think <laughs> governance always pertains to vocation, always. And so that the, there be the, the recognition of a lay vocation would mean a, a change in governance. But I, I think that realization has to happen uh, and, and really is what the, the crisis in the church right now is asking for. Now, uh, but that, and that also means uh, forming uh, lay, the laity and forming the ordained for that purpose. Um, but I have yet to see a parish in this country that is truly governed. I've seen a number that are well administered and lots of lay activity going on, but no real governance. Because again, the acknowledgement of a lay vocation simply isn't there. A lay vocation as lay. Uh, 